So it's a week after we released episode one. Hopefully you've had time to digest the topics we've covered. I'm with Carly Goldsmith, a fellow Class Divide campaigner. And if you've listened to episode one, and I strongly suggest you do before listening to this, Carly's story is featured throughout the series. This is the first of what we're calling reaction episodes. It's our way of saying a bit more about some of the topics that came up in the previous week's episode and connecting it to some of the stuff we might be working on in the campaign and just having a chance to chat a bit more in detail about some of the stuff. We've just listened to episode one together. What came up for you? I think, Curtis, there was just so much in there that I think is really important and it's probably going to take me a bit of a while to digest because, like you, I'm not an expert in education policy or anything. But I thought, essentially, if I've I've listened to it correctly, like, one of the arguments in there is that there's kind of an innate uh, tendency in us as a species to kind of separate people out and categorise them. And I think that one of the interesting things about that for me is if that is the, that if that is true, um, it almost suggests that what's actually happening now is kind of inevitable. And I don't think any of this is inevitable. I think as a species, we've probably spent most of human history fighting in a way against the things that are what we would consider to be kind of part of human nature, I suppose. If you think like an example like violence, you know, we wouldn't accept in this country the levels of random violence that used to be meted out to people 500 years ago wouldn't burn people you know in public or cut off hands for stealing whereas some people would say that actually violence is a part of what it means to be a human being but it's like we're able to identify some of these things and we're able to think about why that's not good and think about ways that we can try to overcome those tendencies Whereas it seems to me like with the thing about class or categorization at whatever point, like it's the people that it suits, essentially, that reinforce the these notions. Because essentially, if something absolutely benefits you and benefits your children and you can't see any circumstances in which those privileges or benefits will be taken away, what are you going to do? You're going to create a system that maintains them. And I think that you know, if you look at our current education system and particularly around the things that were talked about in the podcast around, you know, poverty and kind of what it means to be an ideal learner and, you know, the ways in which kids who are having to grow up poor or being forced to grow up poor enter into school, into a system that has, what was it, uh, a more academic curriculum at year one. I mean, if ever there was an oxymoron, is that the right word? I think that's probably it for me, like an academic career curriculum, sorry, in year one. I mean, that just seems to go against everything we know about child development, right? But it seems a perfect way of sorting kids. So, you know, these ideas persist because we do challenge them maybe, but those challenges aren't strong enough. And those people who, for whom it benefits, maintain those structures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've sort of hit upon, I think, probably the biggest thing in the episode that, you know, is sort of when I think about the idea of like shadow cultures, I think this is what you're saying. But do correct me if I'm wrong, that it's not really a shadow culture. No, (laughs) it's actually lots of people turning a blind eye to it um, or just acting in their own self-interest and knowingly doing that a lot of the time. 
it's a blatant culture. <laughs> you know, if you're on our side of it, it's entirely blatant. I mean, you can see the ways in which if you're poor, like I can tell you the ways in which the odds against me getting a de- getting educated were stacked against me as a, as a child, despite the fact that, you know, I probably did fit into an ideal learner box because I had had those experiences of people reading to me and stuff. But there are, in, there are lots of other ways in my growing up that I wouldn't have fitted into that ideal learner box or, or my ability to fit into school might have been compromised in some ways. Um, but that's very clear to me, the ways in which those things were stacked against me and continue to be stacked against the children that we work with on, on the estate everyone sees that that's totally blatant that's totally out in the open the thing that always surprises me because I never know whether it's just ignorance disingenuousness or outright like lying is the way that people at the other end of the scale don't absolutely see and own the ways in which it's stacked in their favour that's some pretty good sort of mental gymnastics that's going on there yeah, no I, I i just and people kind of get very prickly about it if you point it out um or if you challenge it or if you say you know can you see the ways in which you're educationally advantaged you know people just don't like feeling that the odds are stacked in their favour. They want to believe it's because they've worked hard. They want to believe it's because their kids are bright, because they just have talent and they have, you know... But 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 people refuse to believe, not everybody, but a lot of people I've come across in my time refuse to believe that they are in the positions that they are because of those advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd much rather someone be like, look... I was really advantaged in these ways. Didn't mean I didn't have to do my exams or revise or go to class every day or, you know, get my kids to school on time or make sure that, you know, I did X, Y and Z for them. But I have to accept that where I am now in my life is probably a significant, has a significant relationship with those advantages that I experienced. Like, to me, that seems a much more honest way of, like, living your life. Well... And in a way that actually connects to, I think, one of the big aims of the series, which is to make people talk about this stuff a bit more and have that awareness. And so to a certain extent, maybe it's not a shadow culture, but certainly people aren't owning up to it. People aren't saying or naming their advantage. Yeah. And and actually, if there was a, a bunch of outcomes from this... I would like to be having more discussions that are more open about that because where that then leads is, well... How does my advantage disadvantage others? Yeah, no, in, entirely. And and ultimately, you know, old old Boris Johnson with his, you know, if you shake the cornflakes, the problem is the cornflakes are never shaken. <laughs> I mean, you know, like the, I completely um, rejected the whole premise on which he's com- what, of what he said, because you know IQ tests are a, are a, a discredited and and you know completely wholly inadequate way of testing anyone's intelligence. But essentially, you know, in a system where that cornflake packet was shaken, you could probably justify where we are now in a way that you actually can't because the cornflake packet's never shaken. Mm. You know, you are born into a society and unfortunately 
given the, the collapse in levels of social mobility, you will basically stay where you're born. So there's no shaking in that, is there? There's no movement in that. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's all right for Boris and his many, you know, children because they're at the top of the cornflake packet. They're never, ever, 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 ever going to fall to the bottom because n- no bugger's ever going to shake the packet. Yeah. You know, they can be as thick as they like. I mean, they can be genuinely really thick, but it's going to make absolutely no difference because they will just fail upwards i mean i think boris is probably a prime example of how you fail upwards yeah yeah i mean not to make this too political but come on i mean if he is the brightest and the best that we have to offer Mm -hmm. you know we are in very very serious trouble I want to sort of connect this to the data that we talked about um, sort of near the start of the episode and it's data that actually initially it wasn't class divide data, it was crew club data and crew club for those that don't know is a youth centre although it works with a lot more than just young people in, in Whitehawk, in the heart of Whitehawk and Carly you were involved in some of those initial the initial work that yeah. sort of pulled out that data. Yeah we were and I think... Uh... It's 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 kind of frustrating because, um, you know, those gaps that we see in outcomes, because obviously that's something that is clearly measured, are consistent and persistent. So they may kind of shift a couple of percentage points here and there, but essentially the patterns remain pretty consistent, which is that the gaps in, say, like a phonics test, you know, there is a gap in what the outcomes of a phonics test for children between those who are more advantaged and those are disadvantaged, those gaps get wider when they do their SATs at 11, those gaps get even wider when they do their GCSEs at 14, at 16, sorry. So the gap is there from the very beginning and it grows and it grows substantially over time. Now, I would... It's not that I don't want to know how kids are doing at school, because, of course, that's really important. But I guess I would fundamentally question the sense or the like the logic of doing those tests for those kids at that age, going back to the whole year one academic curriculum nonsense. It would seem to me that the key things for children at that age are learning through play and doing those things that support children to feel emotionally and physically safe in school like school is a place for them like that's where they belong it's about those kind of social and emotional it's about emotional regulation it's about social relationships it's about learning through play so that so I would reject the you know a testing regime really that focuses on how well you do in a phonics test or how well you do at maths or how well you do at reading at for children of those ages but it is the case that the, the gaps ex- exist mm. from very, very early on. And it is the case that in Brighton and Hove, in those early years, we are doing below the national averages in those. I did check that data earlier. So we're not doing as well as other places to get good outcomes for some children. And obviously that then will affect if the gaps widen everywhere, then if we are doing worse than other areas in the country then it suggests that our gaps 
you know, will persist and potentially be worse in future because this is the current, you know, group of kids going through early years and into primary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really worry about the thing that is almost like Voldemort, the thing that should never speak its name, which is like the, in a way, like the impact of poverty and growing rates of poverty. So back in 2017, local authority data showed that 43% of children in Whitehawk were living in poverty. Now, we know that the cost of living crisis and the pandemic will have hugely escalated or increased that number of kids. And, you know, we see that here when we talk to our families and they are saying, yeah, it was, it was, you know, there were times when I couldn't make maybe the right food choices before the pandemic. You know, so maybe I wouldn't eat as many fresh fruit and veg as I wanted to or feed my family as much fruit and fresh veg as I wanted to because it was too expensive. Like we've now got families saying we can't afford to eat. Like even the crap that we, <laughs> that we could pretend, you know, we can't even afford to buy the crap anymore. Um, and we have absolutely no idea what that's going to mean in five years time for those children's education. I mean, we can guess it's going to absolutely destroy you know, even the, the chance of those who potentially could have come out on the right side of that testing up until now may not be coming out on the right side of that testing in two, three, four, five years time. Yeah. And then the other huge thing that we've got is, you know, what the pandemic did to children's learning. I mean, I remember hearing maybe on a couple of occasions, oh, you know, catch up, there'll be catch up. I don't think I've heard anyone say that for the last year, at least, 18 months. Like, what catch-up? Yeah, for who? nothing about that. Yeah, and when? What's that going to look like? What does that look like for children in this neighbourhood where we don't have access to, you know, we, our local secondary school isn't just around the corner. It's not, it's not, you know, we have no secondary schools that are connected to this community. They are all in other people's communities. What does catch-up look like for that group? Um. And so I think the situation as it currently, and I like sometimes I just think I'm a constant pessimist, but I don't want to think that the situation is going to get worse than it is because it's already too bad for my liking. But it is going to get worse. Like it is going to get worse. You look at all the metrics, you look at concentrations of wealth, you look at, you know, how many more children are being pushed into poverty, you look at how school funding is not keeping up with the need. You look at how basically nothing has been done around catch up. You look at our families telling us that, you know, they can't afford to feed themselves. So this whole notion of eating or heating, well, for a lot of families, it's neither now. Mm -hmm. um, and what does that do? What does that do? When, when I think about the catch up stuff, I sort of look at that and go, well, even before COVID, schools need to catch up, mm. especially yeah. on this stuff. Mm. So I imagine any if if funding was put into schools to help with catch up, it would have just filled holes that were already there before COVID. I imagine, and I imagine it just got swallowed up by budgets. And yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I so I think those are the things that really worry me, both from the perspective of the crew club. So what can we do as a youth and community organisation that helps support people here? But also, what will that mean? Like, what will that mean for our children? What will that mean for, they, for our young people? now in another year's time and then in another five years time like what's this going to look like and and I am I think it's if we think it's a horror show now I think we're we're in for a treat 
There's no one challenging this logic. The logic is, if you work hard enough and if you apply yourself and if you do and if you behave yourself in school, then actually you can outrun your poverty. You can outrun your disadvantage. You can outrun the fact that your family don't have any kind of education. You can outrun the fact that, you know, there's not really much opportunity for you. Goodness me, I see our children running every single day. They're just running, 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 running to try and do their best, to try to have some semblance of a, of a, of a childhood in amongst all of this mess. And like, I think it was really interesting, like our children, working class children have to either be exceptionally lucky or exceptionally gifted. You know, the thing that Diane Ray said, well, I think that's going to be even more the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about um, freedom and autonomy, and it came up, there's a couple of reasons I was thinking about it. One, because you sort of talked about it when you were talking about playing out, and we were standing on the fields, and, but also I was just thinking about it in relation to all the testing that happens. Mm. I mean, I've been thinking a lot recently about the testing regime that exists around our school system and who it benefits, and I don't feel like it benefits kids in our community oh no it's, it's there to to measure a system that for the sake of measuring it and it, i just i just don't really see what benefit there is and also it seems that the, the, the way it's all measured is very spurious and very vague and but actually stuff like ofsted reports they can have a huge impact mm. on a whole community a school a community the house prices around the area yeah. You know, and that's the stroke of a person's pen on a report. Yeah. Who, who does that benefit? <laughs> well, it benefits the people that are intense, are very privileged. Because ultimately then, you know, the logic of this shadow culture is just reinforced through testing regimes mm. and through this notion of a good school, bad school, mm. through this notion of a good learner, bad learner. You know, ultimately it's like we've, We've got an idea about society and we've set up all of the systems and practices and processes in education to essentially get the thing we want. And the thing we want is that there are some really gifted and talented kids who are very brainy and, you know, make all the right choices all of the time and, and you know, should, should therefore have the right to run this country and do. <laughs> and, and, and no one can really challenge that. Because that's just the way that it is. And, you know, anyone that doesn't think that is some kind of probably some Marxist upstart, whatever. Um, and so you, you essentially set up a system that, that benefits people that are already benefited by this and doesn't challenge any of that. And I suppose my frustration sometimes is with people, individuals, political parties, pressure groups who kind of don't believe that, believe things should be different, but reinforce those same ideas by kind of buying into elements of it. You know, the focus on behaviour, it's all about improving behaviour. Mm-hmm. Is it, or is it just about making sure that no kid grows up poor? Yeah. Like, come on now. Oh, the whole behaviour thing is just... Like, what's the most expedient, efficient way we can get all these kids through our system? 
That's how. That's what it looks like to me. How can we do the sorting? Yeah. Well, if do the you sorting, know, we'll do the deal sorting. with the fact that we have to have thirty kids in a classroom. Yeah. We know some of them are going to are going to need additional support. We can't fund that. Yeah. So what else can we do? Yeah. We can we'll sort create a behaviour hub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll create a behaviour hub and they, they're not in the classroom anymore. Brilliant. I just want to end this sort of reaction episode on stuff that's good because yeah. there is some good here. There's lots of good yeah. in the community. We're sitting now in the crew club, yeah. you know, and, and that connects to episode two. I think that there's lots of good. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the things that's really interesting that some of the, the contributors to that episode were talking about was actually kids' lives in these communities. It's not all about lack. It's not. You know, I see our kids running in after school and we've got, you know, games and cooking and sport and music and or they can just run around this building <laughs> as many times as they like and they've got friends and they've got other adults who are looking out for them and we have volunteers from the community that are giving up their time to make sure that the welfare of these kids like the, and the welfare of these children is like the, our most paramount it is, is most important thing for us but they have space to be creative and to play and to have their relationships. And they know that all of the adults in this building, you know, are looking out for them and that they can go to them if they need anything. And I think that is a hugely positive thing. And, I, and it worries me that other places and spaces don't have something like this there. Um, and, you know, increasingly it's getting hard to operate. It's getting difficult to, to maintain this, the, you know, the crew club. But, you know, we will continue to do it until, I don't know, I don't know when. We'll just continue to fight to make sure that we have this provision for these young people, for these children and young people. So to me, that's really good. The other thing I think that's really good is one of the things I would say has changed since we started Class Divide is that I think people are making decisions knowing that they're likely to be challenged on them. Yeah, that does feel like a shift. Yeah, because I think for years and years and years and years and years, people just made decisions without thinking that anybody from this place would ever challenge a single one of them. And so decisions could be made that worked against our children and young people time and time and time again. Um, and I think that, that that has changed. Does that mean that different decisions are being made? Not always. Does that mean that, you know, things are going to change significantly? I don't know. I think we've got some very big fights coming up, fights, big challenges coming up. Um, but I do think that that's an important change. The other thing I think is a really important change is that Class Divide, you know, we do talk to the heads. We do talk to the heads of the secondaries. We are having those kinds of conversations now. Whereas before, I think it was automatically assumed that what we were saying was, schools are all really bad and that's not that was never our position no never you know never our position so I think that that attitude of people I think are understanding that a little bit more now um so I think that's really good and I think you know you've got some people so if I think about Jane Fendi down at St Mark's I mean it's a school that's you know having 
a lot of extra input because of its Ofsted rating. But, you know, you go into that school and you feel that it's a safe environment. You feel that the children feel settled there and happy there because they have this massive, huge focus on nurture. Um, and that should be much more valued. I mean, it's an enormous achievement to have that set up in a school. And every member of staff I spoke to at St Mark's were clearly more than 100% committed to the welfare and well-being of their children. Yeah, yeah. And then you have people like Thomas McMorrin at City Academy. And I know that turning it to academy was a very controversial decision at the time. But again, the conversations we've been having with him around belonging and, you know, how do you ensure that children feel like the school, that school is the place for them? You know, I think that that's really, really positive. So I think that there is stuff happening at primary and, and you know, that that's good I think the challenges at secondary are more acute. But I think the fact that we actually are talking to those heads now is great. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future. I think the one thing I would say, and I think this is one of the challenges I think we've kind of tripped, we've come across a lot, is so much of what we attempt to do focuses on the individual. Like so much of what we try to do focuses on changing outcomes for individual children or you know, changing outcomes for individual schools or teachers or whatever. Whereas I think even at the level of the local authority, that there are more systemic things that can be done. Like, for example, the catchment area situation or, for example, having a situation where children on free school meals are giving a given priority in the allocation process, which doesn't happen at the moment. Those would be hugely controversial mm things to happen if they happened but I think local there are there is power I think sometimes it's always like oh but it's central government central government central government believe you me it's central government but what can people do at the local level what systemic change can be made you know could all of our kids get free travel to school (laughs) well you know that's something obviously we have been campaigning on for a while um but I think that point you made about, like, for a long time it feels like decisions have been, been being made where there's a there's a feeling that no one from this area is even looking at it. Yeah. And, oh, gotcha. And, and so I think for us as a campaign, and it's not just me and Carly, there's obviously other people involved yeah, yeah. who are doing lots of stuff, I, I think that's a big thing um, and we need to continue doing that. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, always challenge, constructively, but always challenge, um, I guess the final thing I'd say in this reaction, I, my voice is terrible. It's not. <laughs> oh, no, it, I mean, it's just it's just like the worst. I mean, me, me and Carly have, have chatted a lot about the fact that we have to even be in this. I mean, maybe we should have just used AI voices <laughs> and not had our voices in them because, you know, well, you know, we, we like to, oh, to sort of be behind the scenes I sound, in front of things. I sound like a proper spot as well. But, but, you know, here we are and I guess someone's got to do it. Thank you, Carly, for, for this and for everything, all of your support on, on the series. I just want to say the Crew Club, I'm going to put a link in the show notes um, for you to have a look at the Crew Club's website. And there is very prominently on there a button for you to donate to them. 
Um, they do absolutely amazing work. They're the heart of the community here. So if you've got some money to spare, and I know times are tough, but if you've got some to spare, please think about donating to the Crew Club because they've been a huge support of all the stuff we're doing. That's it for the first reaction episode. Thank you for listening. Do the usual like and subscribing stuff. Leave us a review because it helps people find what we're doing. We'll see you next week for episode two, where I mentioned earlier we're going to be in the community looking at the history of it and how it's impacted education. See you next week. They teach us.